To be the best, you need to play with the best. You might not have your own personal high-level circle of women yet, but you can hang with us on The Female Millionaire Show. I'm Midori Verity, serial entrepreneur for over 25 years, and I interview badass female founders and cut through to what you really need to know. So in 20 minutes, you have what can take years to learn. If you're wanting to play bigger, come play with us. Join the female entrepreneur revolution today. Cheers. We have a special episode today, and we are talking about perseverance and overcoming monumental challenges. And then as I was talking to Torah before we hit record, we also hit on just lightly the not enoughness syndrome. Any of you resonate with that? But I am really, really looking forward to this discussion that we're about to embark on because Tora von Traeger, she's an incredible woman who was raised Amish. She escaped in the middle of the night at age 15 in order to attend school past the eighth grade. Yes, as an Amish child, in general, you are not allowed, not allowed by law, to attend school past eighth grade. Who would have thought? But she has gone on. Not only did she graduate the eighth grade, she graduated from Columbia University and is author of Amish Girl in Manhattan. She advocates for Amish women and children's rights, including attempting to overturn the Wisconsin versus Yoder legislation and make education a right for Americans. Tora, thank you so much for being with us and being willing to, to share your journey. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. So, okay. I did a little research into this because, you know, you came across, I'm like, huh, I've never talked to someone who has done what you've done and um, looked into it. And so Wisconsin versus Yoder, that I, I was shocked. I was shocked. But what that is, is that's a law that came in that said, if you are Amish, you may not attend school past the eighth grade, correct? Uh, it is, um, a legal scholar would say that's not exactly precise. Okay. So I will well, you, you, uh, you, say that uh, yeah. the, the precise legal response is that um, it establishes that Amish children are not entitled um, to an education past the eighth grade. Amish children do not have that right past the eighth grade where um, it doesn't matter what the mandatory um, uh, ages are for whatever state might have mand mandatory age, those um, uh, laws don't apply to Amish children. And so the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, backed up um, the Amish uh, parents and religion and um, decided that a religion's rights outweigh a child's rights, uh, uh, an American citizen child's rights to go to educate, uh, to go to school past eighth grade. It's more important that the parents um, and the Amish, you know, religion in general can say, no, we don't want our kids to go to school. In fact, we don't even want our kids to learn um, how to read uh, English, for example. That's how much the um, Wisconsin v. Yoder uh, case uh, let's Amish go in terms of 
basically there's there's no oversight at all doesn't again doesn't matter what we all thought about in terms of laws and state laws and truancy law you know that things all like went that. Out the window. Yeah. yeah so okay with that said i'm you know i'm still wrapping my head around that shocking it, it's fact. a lot <laughs> but how did you even know tora that, because I'm a, I'm guessing, and I do not have direct experience in the Amish um, religion, that but that you didn't have a lot of access to outside information. Mm-hmm. So how did you know that you could even, you know, that, that you could have a different life? How did you figure out how to leave in the middle of the night at 15 years old? How Talk to us about this journey, because I think that there's so much value in the story that you have? The best way to think about it is that we're, we're not in a physical commune, for example. So we're not blocked off physically from the rest of the world. Um, the practicing Amish live in uh, rural communities, generally speaking, um, very, less than 1% live in a you know city area, inside city limits. Um, so we're out in the rural you know, country, we have non-Amish neighbors, um, we pay non-Amish people to drive us around if it's too far to go with a horse and buggy, for example. Um, and so that exposure is there constantly, that there's a world um, separate from us, outside of us. And it is a very us, them, us, everybody else kind of mentality. Um, and so the barrier, um, the barriers are invisible. There, um, the educational deprivation is a key barrier that keeps that wall up to prevent us from being able to transition um, easily, or even if for the ones who do, the uh, low percentage that do, they um, generally come back, like a big percentage of that has to return to the community because it's just too difficult making that cultural transition and all of that. Um, and then the language is the other barrier. So English is not my first language. Um, it, it, I didn't learn how to speak English until I was around six years old in the first grade. That's when traditionally Amish kids start learning English. That's something again, where like the average Amish adults, um, I, I would say the language, depending on who it is, it's between third and fourth grade, the, their um, English fluency um, or third and fifth grade. Um, so think about how difficult that is to just socialize and sort of like there's this huge, you know, culture shock in terms of now you, you're allowed to have electricity, you're allowed to um, drive a car, you're allowed to wear, you know, um, non-Amish clothes. There's all those things. And then on top of that, we don't have the vocabulary to even... Um, translate a lot of the concepts that are talked about that are just normal in the English language. Oh my gosh. Okay. So (laughs) what happened, happened, Tora, where you decided, you know, I ain't down with this. I'm, I'm out of here. What, what was that point where you, where you decided I'm, I'm going to figure out a way to get out. Did you meet someone? What, I mean, how did it transpire? Well, it, it started with, um, you know, looking back when I wrote my memoir, you know, then I started sort of like pinpointing major, you know, um, shifts, you know, turning points. So it started around actually eight years old before I consciously, you know, thought of I'm going to to leave and, and all of that. At that point, I realized that all the questions I had about 
um, our culture, our religion, um, the answers weren't satisfactory. And so the classic response is, um, I'll say, I'll use the example of um, asking, why can't we have a car? You know, why can we pay someone who's not Amish to have a car? Um, but if we have one, we're going to go to hell for sure. But we can pay someone else to go to hell or does God have different rules for different people? Like it didn't make sense to me. And then I was told, um, well, wait until you're older and then you'll understand. And that's one of the stock responses in addition to it's always been that way. That's the way we do it. And um, when I got older, around age 11, I uh, realized that um, I, I wasn't going to get better answers. And at that point, when I was quite, still asking all these questions, and I was a very curious child. I mean, I had a lot more questions than the average Amish kid, like my nickname was Question Box, really, that everybody <laughs> laughed and called me Question Box. Um, and so I was a very curious child. And um, and I had a very philosophical brain too, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, well, of course that's why I got my philosophy degree at Columbia is because that, that was just a natural thing for me to do. Um, <laughs> but I decided, okay, well, at age 11, I'm going to read the Bible from cover to cover um, to find that answer. That's you know, the only thing um, I have left in terms of getting any satisfaction out of my questions. And um, the verses that were cited to me as reasons for why we can, couldn't have a car, I read those as Jesus, for example, saying, oh, don't be attached to material possessions. You know, it's not wrong to have material material possessions there's no harm in that the harm is if you become attached to it of course i didn't use the word attached or that concept when i was 11 years old i didn't know about that but that it was the same idea that was the same uh, meaning i got out of it and then at that point i felt oh this is not what you know what we're being taught like i i was being told something that's not true and I felt that I had an ethical imperative at that point to not practice the religion, that if I stayed inside the religion, I would be hypocritical and, you know, it would be actually, you know, going against consolation or um, some sort of, it gave me some sort of assurance that maybe I won't get sent to hell because that is the big fear that hangs over a lot of kids heads and, and especially mine because I thought so much so um, I was worried you know I would go to hell if I was not perfect if I did not um, follow all the rules correctly and what a lot of people don't know is that in the Amish religion doesn't promise you um, salvation like doesn't promise heaven um, if you're um, born and raised Amish it's your obligation to remain a practicing Amish person. That's your only chance at getting into heaven, but it's still not guaranteed. Um, and if you leave the religion, you're definitely gonna go to hell. And so I would you know, pray at night, God, don't send me to hell. Don't let me die because I don't wanna go to hell. And then you know, when I read the, that Bible from cover to cover, I'm like, okay, so I, I think I'm I'm gonna be okay. You know, I'm hoping Jesus is going to be on my side here. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, so and then it was a matter of figuring out how to escape. <laughs> yes. Okay, so everyone around you, I'm assuming your friends, bought into the whole idea of, of you know what what you're taught through the religion. Your parents 
I don't know if you had siblings. I'm, I'm guessing you did, but you were kind yeah. of, did you feel like you were your own island in? I, I, I did in that community. Um, so on my mother's side, like none of the aunts and uncles um, had left the religion, but on my father's side, there were several um, uh, uncles. And so that was something that I knew in terms of if I managed to figure out how to get out of there and get you know the money to buy a bus ticket or something like that and get to them, I would have a place to stay. Um, but it was still you know something where it was largely up to me to figure out how to make that initial escape. Um, and uh, I knew that uh, if I, you know, no matter what happened, I couldn't really tell any of my friends. Like I, I knew that some of them were also not happy, but they, uh, you know, kind of like their parents were a little bit more tolerant. And so they would party on the weekends or something. And that kind of, you know, was kept them inside, right? Like that was sort of a flavor of the outside and and they didn't want to go further than that. Um, and I did make the mistake of, of talk, telling one of my friends who I thought, you know, I thought she was a friend, um, telling her I wanted to leave. And, and uh, so I had a failed first attempt actually. And that's a big part of my story that a lot of times I don't talk about because there's so many other questions that people have, but I feel it's important to know like my escape that was successful was not the first attempt. Like I had a failed first attempt and I was basically under Amish house arrest for nine months before I figured out how to escape the second time, which um, was then, like I said, successful. Okay, so the second time <laughs> you had yeah. even more of an idea of what was at risk. Because I'm guessing if they put you under house arrest for nine months, the second time isn't going to be any prettier. Right, right. Um, it, it's sort of the way that it works is there are two different ways that I could have responded to the initial failed attempt. Um, one was um, pretending to be the good reform girl and obedient person and all of that and doing everything that they want me to do and just you know plot my second escape attempt and get out of there whenever I could. Um, the second um, response could have been, I could have just been at that point um, completely you know, upfront um, in terms of making my stand and saying, listen, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm not going to repent or not, or tell you I won't leave again and all of that. Like I, I'm, I'm done with this. And at that point, it would have been the situation where they either would have decided, yeah, there's there's nothing further we can do. I mean, you're a lost cause kind of um, thing. So it would have actually, in hindsight, been better for me to choose that route. <laughs> um, but it was important for me at that time that I wanted my, you know, my parents and my relatives and the community and my siblings and my father to know that I had a valid reason for leaving, for escaping. You know, like this was not just some rebellious teenager kind of thing, that there were serious issues within, you know, the home life and the community in general. And you guys need to wake up. That was my attempt to try to get the adults to wake up and start, you know, treating the kids better and start, you know, thinking about what it is that 
what kind of world they're creating for the for the kids. Um, and so that's why I played the good girl. And I wanted, you know, them to know, you know, it wasn't just me lashing out because of course that's how it was, you know, um, uh, talked about as, and of course, you know, none of that effort made any, <laughs> didn't make any difference, you know? So that's why I say, I wish I would have just taken the other fork in the path, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm guessing you didn't have a cell phone to no, call someone. Cell phone. How did you, so you said you had some uncles. Did they know about your plan? How did you communicate with them? How did you go about it? So we lived in a community that was on like the liberal end of the spectrum in terms of um, material possessions. Um, one of those material conveniences that we had were phones in the barn, for example, or phones in, in a like a phone shanty out, you know, at the end of the drive. We couldn't have it in the house. God would send us to hell if we had the phone in the house, but it was okay to have it in the barn. God was cool with that. <laughs> and so, okay. <laughs> it's a totally way to talk about these things. You have to laugh and you have to see the humor. Yeah. <laughs> So I would crawl out of the bathroom window. We also had bathrooms, indoor bathrooms at that community. Um, but I, I was born in a very strict, like on the strict end of the spectrum where, you know, outhouses, no running hot water, um, no uh, uh, heat um, in terms of, you know, a wood stove or something. That was the only heat we had. And then in this place, like the more liberal place, we could have gas propane powered fridges and all of that and propane powered cooking stoves. So that was, you know, that was English, you know, being anybody who's not Amish is English, by the way. Um, and <laughs> so, okay, got it. So anyway, so I'd sneak out the um, bathroom window. So I'd crawl out of, of the bathroom window when everybody was asleep. And I'd go out to the barn and I'd make a collect call to one of my uncles. And um, this is not something that most Amish girls at that age would know about. They wouldn't know what a collect call is or that if they called, it would show up in the phone bill. They wouldn't know about that. I knew about it because I was I was working around my father a lot. Like I um, would observe what he's doing. Um, you know, as the oldest kid, so I was the, you know, I had to be another income source of income, right? Like as soon as you're, you know, old enough to start working, you can lift some bags, you're put to work, doesn't matter what age you are. So I observed everything I could that my father did, because that was part of my way of like preparing myself for the outside, trying to get as much knowledge as possible. And so I would um, hear him talk about like calls that that doesn't show up on the phone bill like just in conversation um and so otherwise you know i would have gotten caught at that point <laughs> oh my gosh okay so your uncle or your uncles knew you were coming yes yeah and so uh, i want to talk more about the internal part of you your mm -hmm. whole life that you knew up until you were 15 was this way of life right yes you work, you believe in, in God or the, the type of religion that they have. They have very strict, it sounds like black and white, well, blackish uh, <laughs> roles, uh, depending on what who interpreted what God said. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, black and white and also gray, you know? Yeah. So, yes. 
<laughs> so it, but, but that was your family, right? No matter what, it was your family. Right. And by you leaving, what went through your head of what you were actually beyond just leading this community internally? What did you feel like you were leaving? I, I didn't know if I would ever see my siblings again. That was something that, you know, I, I was very, you know, that was painful for painful for me because I knew they wouldn't have a good home life or at least, you know, if they were treated like me, it would be hard. Um, and I wanted my siblings to to know that there's there's a different option to life and that if they wanted to also leave I'm around, you know, like they have somebody safe to go to. And um, and so, but I had to prepare myself for the fact that I might not see any of them ever again or until they were of age or something, you know, 20 years later. And um, and I I didn't care about my mother ever seeing her again because she she and I didn't have a good relationship, just <laughs> put it mildly. Um, and, uh, I, I wanted to get away from her, you know, that, that was a good thing to get away from her. My father, again, and looking back when I wrote my memoir, I'm like, wow, this is not a good, good person at all. But it, it's like I had Stockholm syndrome. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted, I desperately wanted parents and desperately wanted my father, um, who, to love me. And, um, and I clung to that, you know, again, like looking back, wasted way too many years on trying to fix things, thinking that I could, you know, have a father and all of that. Um, but all of this to go back to how I prepared for myself, like I, I didn't know how my parents would respond. Again, my mother's not the decision maker. It's always usually the, you know, the male figure of the family that makes all the decisions. Um, and so, you know, I didn't know what my father would say. Would he ever let me see the kids again? Would I be able to go back and say hi to them or not? And so for me, I had to put myself into this frame of mind that this is a one-way ticket. It's it's like uh, going from the experience was crash landing onto another planet or think of, you know, uh, all this talk about going to Mars, you know, people are trying to get to Mars and all of that like that's a one way trip like whoever is going to be on that first <laughs> trip to mars you know you're never coming back and that's how i had to uh, prepare myself uh, for um and that's that's what i did you know like i'm i might never see see anyone again um and i just tried to process that as much as possible and um yeah <laughs> and let's not forget you were 15 when you actually finally got out. So, okay. So you make it out, you get to a family member's place, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming you were able to stay there for a while. And somehow you get yourself into Columbia university. <laughs> <laughs> How did this, you know, just, just the going from such control, a controlled environment to the outside world, how did you adjust to that? And I want to, before you answer that, I want everyone who's listening to this to be thinking about maybe you're in a, you're working in corporate and you're thinking of starting your own business and you're scared as hell because things can go wrong. This is a 15 year old girl who left the whole world that she knew and got herself out. So that's why I'm asking this question is, you know, how did you adjust to that? 
for me, I, I embraced it. I, I, I was like a sponge, you know, it was definitely the best decision of my life. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I didn't regret it at all. Um, and, and most Amish kids who escape or leave, whatever the case might be, um, they are not able to transition as well as I did. Um, it, it's usually really hard or a lot more difficult for them. Um, but I, I was, you know, ready for it. And I think part of it was I read a lot. That was, again, like one of the very few ac the things I had in terms of accessing the outside was reading library books um, and sort of like living in the worlds of the authors and all of that. And so, so I just couldn't wait for it. And so for me, it was, I, I don't, I think of going to a concert or some event that you wanted to do all your life and how happy you are when you go and you hear this, see your favorite band or singer or something. That was how it was like for me. So there was nothing culture shockish about that. That said, it the um, not having family around um, was really hard. Uh, the Amish have this, there's this strong sense of, of security, which is also what keeps people in, that you know if something bad happens to you, you break a leg, your house burns down or whatever, the whole community is there to help you. And that loss of family, not having family haunted me for, probably 20 years like it took that long for me to fully sort through that and and not feel this hole in my you know psyche or heart or whatever from that um and and, and it wasn't because I had again a good home life you know it wasn't that it was you know it was just the good parts of it you know that that is you know like my grandparents my grandmother who was the only person who never said anything bad about me like not being able to have her in my life um was really hard and um holidays that was um I could never understand why people were suicidal during during the holidays like during Christmas or you know um Kwanzaa or Hanukkah whatever you celebrate um you know, I, I I thought that's the best time of year. <laughs> that was my favorite time of year as an Amish kid because I got presents. You know, it was the only time of the year that I knew that my parents weren't going to fight and I wasn't going to get a beating or a scolding for a day. You know, <laughs> um, and so that was drove me to the edge. Um, once I got to you know, including going to Columbia. You know, I I'll never forget my first Christmas at Columbia all the kids went home and had family to go to. I was left in the dorm alone pretty much. And um, there were some international students um, that were there um, as well. But even then, like, it, it wasn't the same. You know, I was, I think I was the only American in, in the dorms. And um, so that that was tough. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't even imagine. So Tora, let's, so now you've graduated from Columbia. You have your books, you have your, your foundation that you've created. Do you also, do you have a family now? I don't know if you, have you, did you get, have you been married? Do you have children? I mean, what, how have you created, how have you filled that, that part of you? So I um, have lots of friends who are my family, chosen family, and I did have um 
almost a family. I was engaged and that ended really badly. He killed himself. So that was when I was 31 years old. And, you know, I never thought that, you know, first of all, you don't lose your, your partner until you're in your 80s or something. And that was a big, huge thing for me to go through and, and realize, oh, wow, yeah, this happened. <laughs> um, and then just the way it happened was another thing. So that's another whole episode there to talk about that. Um, <laughs> I think we can have a long series but... with you about all these different <laughs> journeys. Oh my gosh. Okay. But that was my family experience. And afterwards, you know, I, I uh, realized that I had, you know, I had a whole cycle of holidays and birthdays with him and his kids. And, you know, that, that was my family experience. And I felt like I, I was complete or whatever in that and didn't feel like I was missing that experience anymore. Um, I've never wanted kids of my own so that that's never been, you know, an issue for me not having my own kids or anything like that. Um, and, uh, but I still wanted like a partner, right? I wanted a healthy romantic relationship. I wanted something solid and, and somebody I could grow with and live with and be with. Um, and, and again, you know, talking about all these things that I had to sort out, it, it was the childhood traumas and uh, getting that sorted out so I could have better friendships even you know I didn't even have really deep friendships because of not trusting people um and so the romantic relationships I had um, were not good either um until I finally 29 years old through you know my early 30s sorted through that um and so that was what was really you know missing for me was finding that partner life partner and one day it just I woke up and it was gone didn't want you know didn't feel that that was you know eating away at me anymore so I'm like thankful <laughs> thankful for that I don't know how that happened but it certainly you know has made my life so much better <laughs> and yeah. I still you know want this experience this healthy relationship um but I'm so grateful that it, it's not something that is eating away at me like it used to be oh my gosh okay so Let's talk, we've, we've talked about you quite a bit. Talk to us about your organization. You know, what, tell us, just tell us some background on what you've created. So I founded the Amish Heritage Foundation. And um, the reason for that was to, A, um, talk about the general public. And then the second reason was to be able to provide the resources and support and, and um, things that need to uh, be done inside the Amish community for the women and the girls in particular. So um, for me, it was sort of like an underground railroad. Like I was inspired by the Harriet Tubman story when I was around 13 years old. And, you know, she was my first female um, hero role, role model. And I thought, wow, like she really like, you know, I, I didn't realize until I read her story that that was how I was feeling. I felt like I was owned like a piece of property by somebody. And she put words to my feelings. And she said, you know, she took her, her destiny into her own hands and said, no, this is not okay. I'm going to set myself free. And on top of that, I'm going to go help 
whoever else wants to be set free as well, help them along this, this path. And so that was something that I told myself I would do if I ever made it and <laughs> I would create this Amish Underground Railroad. And this is what the Amish Heritage Foundation is essentially. <laughs> okay, I what a fascinating journey. And I know that you're writing a lot of grants to get funding for this worthy organization. And um, I, I look forward to seeing all that you create and the worlds that you change. And I'm so grateful for you to come in and share your story so authentically. Um, you know, I know we didn't talk too much about the business part of it, but really as women founders, women business owners, it's the personal part. Mm -hmm. it's, it's that mental game. It's, it's those, the mental obstacles that we foresee um, that keep us back from playing how we really want to play and achieving the life that we really want to achieve. And Tora, you have so beautifully illustrated how you took obstacles that have kept most people in and really overcame those in a thoughtful and productive way. So thank you for sharing your journey. And where can people find out more about you, Tora? They can go to AmishHeritage.org, um, and if they don't know how to spell it, just spell it however you want, and Google will find it for you. <laughs> the same with my name. Um, I'm everywhere on, on Google, so <laughs> if you can get the name close enough. Um, again, it's just AmishHeritage.org, and um, we have, uh, if you sign up for the email list, you get um, five popular myths about the Amish. So if you're really curious, you want to know more about, um, you know, some uh, about Amish culture and and get the facts, uh, that's a really nice way to start off. And um, if you're interested in the book, all the sales proceeds go to the Amish Heritage Foundation. So that's an easy way to support the foundation if you're interested in doing that. Fantastic. And also an email. Let me know that you heard me on here and I'm happy to... Um, yeah, say hi and answer whatever questions you have. I encourage you to get her book because as you can see, it doesn't matter if you're from the Amish religion or anything Is else. That might, this I think goes, that might be my connection here for some reason it's not doing too well. Yeah, I think we're cutting out. So we're going to end it right now. Thank you for being here, Tora.